part that stood out to me today is the verse that says you are more than enough. Jesus is more than enough for us, right? If all everything else was taken away, he would still be more than enough for us. How's everyone doing today? Good? Good. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We have a long section of scripture to read, but I'm going to let you sit down, and I'm going to do all the work today. But we're going to read most, the rest of this chapter. We ended up with verse 6 last week. So we'll be starting out with verse 7 of chapter 11. And we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. So it's going to be a lot to read, but the sermon's going to be relatively simple. So uh, in fact, it's going to, I got to looking at my sermon from last week. It's a lot like last week's sermon. If you remember last week, we talked about faith and we defined what faith was from the Bible. And then I proposed several different counterfeit faiths and this is going to take the positive side of that and looking at exactly what saving life, saving faith is and, uh, and how it's demonstrated. So, have you everyone found the scripture today? Okay, let me go ahead and read this. We'll get into our introduction. Starting with verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he, that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that there were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, them for a, for, has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Abraham, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites 
and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for, hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and, the, and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been enriched for several, seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made so strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to read this scripture. And there's just so much in there um, that we need to understand. And we don't have time to go through all of these great individuals today, but we want to learn more about this faith that causes us to persevere and this faith that in chapter 11 you have put on display as a means of us seeing what type of faith that we should have and these are not just historical characters made up in some book but these are actual people who had an incredible faith in you and because of that they perform great, incredible things for you. And so we pray that you would help us to see what it is to have this kind of saving faith and what difference it might make in our lives if we truly placed and surrendered everything to you. And so we pray that you would help us to know and be able to do that and understand it better today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I felt a little bit about myself because I talk about Jesus and how he is better so much. 
And this is all about faith, and he just keeps going on over and over again that this was done by faith, and Abraham did this by faith, and Moses did this by faith. And so we have a lot to learn from this about faith, don't we? We have a lot to learn about what is a true saving faith. And last week we defined it, and we defined it from the scripture. We read a couple verses. We read verses 1 and 6 about what faith actually is. And they said this, they say, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in verse 6 we learn that it is impossible without faith to please God, and that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so faith is something that is real, that is tangible. It's something that we can know. And it doesn't mean that the, all the evidence is there, but it's an internal knowing that we have, an assurance that we have, that the things that God has said are true. And especially about Jesus Christ, right? This is especially talking about our salvation. And so that's what we're talking about today is what is a saving faith and what, how is that demonstrated in these verses that we have today? So this is still a little bit of a review, but we learned that saving faith is actually a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not because of works, that no that, so that no one may boast. God is to get all the glory, right? He is to get all the glory for, for our salvation. And so we contribute nothing by means of our works in order to earn that salvation. It's all by grace and that faith that we are given in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so faith is a gift from God. And it's, I believe it's a, a, a faith that we can ask him to increase as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit toward the end. There are certain components of faith that must be true. First of all, there must be a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Someone has to tell us the gospel. We have to understand that. And people can, can understand the facts of what happened to Jesus and that he hung on the cross and that he died. They might even have some kind of a sense that he rose from the dead. But knowledge in itself doesn't save. We've talked about this many, many times that just knowing the facts of the story does not save us. We also must assent or acknowledge the facts and we must confess our reliance and our need of him because of our sin. So there's knowledge of the events. There's an assent that these facts are true and relevant to me. And then the third component, I think, is trust. And I love the word trust. Even though the Bible probably uses believe more or receive more, but it's this idea of trust, of embracing Christ, of giving up on all of your works as a means of salvation and trusting fully in him. John 1.12, I think, says it really well, even though it doesn't use the word trust, it's implied here. It says, but to all who did receive him, who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And to trust in Jesus is to receive him and to receive all that he is. 
And so we trust in who Jesus is and we trust in what he has done for us. We trust that he is the son of God, that he is God who has come in the flesh. And then we trust that he died on the cross for our sins and that through believing and trust in him, we can have eternal life. So that's kind of a definition of what faith is from the Bible. But the rest of what we've just read really talks about what does saving faith look like. And this helps us define it as well by what it looks like. And so we're going to be talking about eight things. And we're not going to take a lot of time on each one of these, but we're going to talk about eight things that gives us an impression of what saving faith looks like. So first of all, saving faith is a God-fearing faith. So on your handout, you can write in God-fearing. Saving faith is a God-fearing faith. Proverbs 9 and 10, 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You know, there's some things that, uh, if we're not careful, pass away from our language and our teaching. You know, one of them is the doctrine of hell. You know, you don't, if you go on TV and you look at TV evangelists or TV preachers, you don't normally hear a lot about hell anymore, but it is an essential component of sharing the gospel is that there is a judgment. All of us uh, will be judged at one time or another. There is a hell and people will be cast into hell, but you wouldn't know it hardly in America that hell still existed. It's almost like we're ashamed to mention it. Well, another thing I think that's not too prevalent in our language and our culture is this term, the fear of the Lord, that we are to be a God-fearing people. And I think one reason why we don't hear it that much is people have this impression that we're not supposed to be afraid of God, that he loves us, and we should not be afraid of him. And I think there's some truth in that. For a person who's received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you should not be afraid of God. Amen? Amen. <laughs> you should not be afraid of God. Amen. There still remains, though, a fear of God for the Christian and also for the non-Christian. The non-Christian should be afraid of God. The wrath of God right now is upon them. And unless something changes, they will be cast into fire. And so that's the sad facts. That's what we preach. That's what we believe. That's why we're so emphatic about sharing the gospel with people. But we also need to understand that as Christians, that there is a fear, there is a respect, there is a reverence for the Lord that we should have. Yes, he's our father. Yes, in a sense, we call him daddy, father, father, Abba, father. But that fear that respect for him should never diminish. I think Noah understood this, and the scripture says that he understood it. It says, by faith, in verse 7, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, which was the coming flood, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. You see, I think Noah had a little bit of a understanding of the fear of God that maybe we don't understand. He knew that he was going to be in the ark and that he was going to be saved. But he also knew what terrible calamity was coming upon the earth. 
and he feared the Lord. He reverenced the Lord for his power and his might and his majesty and his judgment and his fairness and his grace and his mercy. He respected him, he reverenced him. He didn't talk lightly about him as though he were the man upstairs, right? You ever heard that term? We shouldn't do that. <laughs> we shouldn't call him the man upstairs. We should only speak in reverent tones with him. First Peter 3:15 says this about Christ, Christ being the Son of God, being God in the flesh. It says, but in your hearts, reverence or honor Christ the Lord as, as holy. We are to reverence Christ. And I believe that a saving faith, someone who's really saved, will have a reverence for God. God will not be mocked. <laughs> he will not be ignored either. And that's part of the fear of the Lord that we are missing. I think for, not necessarily for us, but I think in America, I'm thinking about America. When we think of God, there's a fear of God, a respect for God that is missing. People would just rather ignore him and go about their everyday life, making decisions, making important decisions, never asking what God, asking God what I should do in my life. So we need to be doing that. We need to respect him and have reverence for him and maybe just a tinge of true fear because he is so great and awesome. So saving faith is a God-fearing faith. Secondly, saving faith is a repentant faith. We've talked about this many, many times. Saving faith is a repentant faith. Those two go hand in hand. And in fact, our statement of faith says that Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a gift as well. <laughs> repentance is a gift of well. People repent because it's a gift that is given to them by God. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to him as Lord and Savior. And so we've talked about this many times before. I'm sure you could probably teach it as well as I do, but, but repentance is turning away from our sin and turning toward God. One cannot be saved unless their faith is accompanied with repentance. It's not a true faith if it is. And we've seen all the counterfeit types of faith. One of those is a faith that does not repent of their sins. And so we should be watching ourselves, right? Even as Christians, when you become a Christian, you acknowledge your sin, you turn away from that sin, you turn toward God, he receives you, you become a child of God. But we know ourselves all too well that that sin doesn't stay hidden for, for long, that we commit sins again and we must repent again. And so we come to God repenting of our sins. This is a normal procedure for the Christian. And you might say, well, that... That's kind of a downer to, to talk about our sin all the time and talk about repentance. Isn't that a downer? Doesn't that take the joy out of the Christian life? No. It does not take the joy out of the Christian life because every time we repent, we look back at what Jesus has done for us on the cross and we see that it's sufficient. Amen. He paid it. He paid the penalty. He paid the price for that. And it's sufficient for us. 
And so what looks like should be a downer actually turns into worship. We repent and then we worship Christ for the wonderful gift that he has given us. So saving faith is a repenting faith. Uh, a perfect example of this, he's just mentioned briefly in our chapter here, but I had to use him as an example as King David. King David, true believer in, in God, an example for us of how to repent. And we probably all know what he did, that he was not a perfect king. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to hide it and then tried to blame it on her husband and then sent her husband to the front line so that he could be killed, all to hide his sin. But he did come to a place of repentance. Listen to this prayer as an example of how we might have sorrow for our sin and repent. It's from Psalm 51. This is David. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil, done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And the rest of that psalm goes on and it's, uh, I recommend that you read it. But do you hear the, how his heart is broken because he has sinned against God? We in the church today and in America need this type of repentance Amen. where we are looking at our sin that has broken the heart of God, that has broken our relationship with him and distanced us from him. And we need to come before him on our knees and confess our sins as a nation, as individuals, as a church that we might have times of refreshing and that our joy might return. Saving faith really is a repentant faith. And I'm happy for that. I'm thankful that we have this procedure and this belief that we go through of repenting, confessing our sins, repenting of it, and worshiping God for what he has done, that he's paid the price for everything. Thirdly, saving faith is a miracle-believing faith. It is a miracle-believing faith. Do you believe in miracles today? Amen. Yes, I believe in miracles today. I believe they're different, maybe, than what they were in the New Testament times. You know, I haven't seen a person yet who has miracle healing powers who can come and touch someone like Jesus did and heal them, but I believe that God heals. And he heals in response to our prayers and our belief in him. And Sarah was such a person who believed in miracles. After all, she had a baby when she was past the age of having babies. She never thought it would happen. At first she laughed about it, but she finally succumbed and believed that she would have this baby and it was a miracle. She had a miracle believing faith. There's another miracle that happens very frequently as we preach the gospel, and that's a dead person coming to life. It's a dead person coming to life. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter two, just the first six or seven verses. But listen to this, listen to this like you've never listened to it before, what it's actually saying. 
and you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins. Now, does it say you were asleep? Does it say you were hurt? It says you were dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. Dead people do nothing. Look at, look at what God does in response, though. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of my, mankind. But, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amazing, right? Amazing. We were dead. We were like people who have drowned or at the bottom of the ocean. There's no saving them. You don't throw a life preserver to someone who is dead. They have to be resurrected first. They have to be raised from the dead. This is what God has done, being rich in mercy. It wasn't because we deserved it, because we were walking in sin. We were following the same course as the world is following, to destruction. It says that we were following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. It says that we were carrying out the desires of our body and mind, taking no heed or, or uh, taking no heed that God is aware of what we were doing. And we were by nature children of wrath. We were not children of God. One of my, little one of my pet peeves, probably people on Wednesday night Bible study know this, is when someone says we're all children of God. We're not all children of God. There are children of God, there are children of wrath. Now if you look at our statement of faith, it says that God is fatherly to everyone, but he is only father indeed to those who believe and trust in Christ. Just as I mentioned in John chapter one, verse 12, let me go back to that verse that I quoted a little bit earlier. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have to become the children of God Amen. through Jesus Christ. So let me make that clear. We are children of wrath prior to coming to know Christ. Because of Christ and receiving him into our life, we become children of God. And God is fatherly to all people. He's fatherly in the sense that he wants all people to come to him. Amen? He wants all people to come to him. He calls them to come to him, and yet they refuse. But those who do believe and trust in him, he's given them the right to become children of God. So we were children of wrath, but God did something. He made us alive. It's by his grace, and because of that, we are seated in the heavenly places so that in the ages of come he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace won't that be a wonderful time it's not going to be boring folks 
I think a lot of people think of one long church service that's exceptionally long and kind of goes on and on. And, but heaven is not like that. Heaven will be focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ and all the grace riches that we have in him. Okay, moving on. Saving faith is an obedient faith. Saving faith is an obedient faith. If you are truly saved, you will have a desire to be obedient. Obedient to the scriptures as you read through them. It's kind of built into, the, into you. It's part of the new covenant. Under the new covenant, remember, God said, I will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I will uh, write the law on your heart. This is our desire to be obedient. And Abraham's a perfect example of someone who's obedient. Abraham was asked to leave his home in Ur, travel to Haran, and then eventually all the way into the promised land, the land that he was to be given. And he did that just because God said so, with no promise of, of wealth or riches, uh, only the promise that God gave him. Saving faith is an obedient faith. It's said of Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Even before Jesus Christ came, Abraham knew that he would bless future generations and part of that blessing would be a Messiah who's to come and he placed his faith and trust in that and that faith was credited as righteousness and he was obedient to God's call. Jesus, of course, says this as well. He says in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus makes a difference, right? You come, and he comes into our life we now have a desire to want to be obedient to him. We're grateful for what he has done for us. We love him because of what he has done for us. And so we do not have a desire to disobey him, but a desire to obey him. Saving faith is a self-denying faith. Jesus said it this way, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Moses, I believe in this, Scripture that we've read is an example of this and many, many others, by the way. But it was Moses that when he grew up, he refused to be called Pharaoh's son, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He denied the privilege that he had and suffered with his people instead. Saving faith is a sacrificial faith. We all sacrifice, don't we, as Christians? We're called to be called to sacrifice. We're, to, we're called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In the scripture that we've read, I think the story of sacrificial faith that shows us the heart of God most completely is one of my favorite stories. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember the story? God 
confronting Abraham and telling him to sacrifice his own son three days up on the mountain and Abraham proceeds to be obedient to God. What a sacrifice. As they walk toward the mountain, Isaac carrying his own wood for the sacrifice, continually asking Abraham, who's the sacrifice going to be? Where, where's the sacrifice? We have the wood. We're walking toward the place where we're going to sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide sacrifice. And finally, they get there, and they're placing the wood on the altar, and Abraham is just about to take the knife and slit Isaac's throat, and God says, stop. Probably not quoting him exactly, but he says, stop. I have provided a sacrifice. And Abraham looks in the thicket, and there's a ram there to be sacrificed. But make no mistake that we are called as Christians to live a sacrificial life of faith. We're asked to sacrifice time. Many of you are involved in ministries and you give of your time. Many of you give of your money and material things. At times, people have been asked to sacrifice time with their family. And it seems like a big sacrifice. And it is, right? We look at these examples of of people in chapter 11 and we think of all the things that they sacrifice and yet it says they never really got to see what they were promised during their lifetime did they they never got to see the Christ but we know that God's timeline is longer than ours and that even though we sacrifice all this for a short period of time we gain Christ Amen? <laughs> we gain Christ, and that makes it all worth it. That makes it all worth it. And right here today, you may not think or see that possibility, but in the years to come in heaven when he is displaying all his glories and we are right there next to our creator and able to speak with him and ask him questions and fellowship with him, I think we'll begin to understand. But Paul, I think Paul understood because he says this, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Might be a good one for us to memorize, right? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I have to stop and think about that verse a lot because I have lived such a blessed life. <laughs> I have, I grew up in a, not a rich home, but middle income home, never had to worry about where my next meal was coming from, never myself had to think about working as a teenager except if I wanted to and wanted to have some spending money. I had clothes provided by my family. I've hardly ever been sick a day in my life, but I know that's me. I know you guys have suffered greatly. And we all do to some extent. We've lost loved ones. We've lost time with loved ones that we've spent at church. Missionaries have spent time overseas, lost loved ones. The sacrifice has been great. But the reward will be greater. Amen. 
by an infinite amount. Our life is just a short time and then we'll spend all eternity with God. He who did not give us, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? The sacrifice is great, but the reward is much greater. Saving faith is also a conquering faith. It's a conquering faith. It conquers sin, right? Saving faith eventually will conquer sin. I, I believe that. I know that we'll never totally be sinless. But sin is not to have dominion over us. Right? It's not to have dominion over us. We've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light. Darkness no longer has any rule over us. So we should stop acting like it does. Right? We should stop acting like it does. It is a conquering faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Man, I would have loved to have been there that day. I would have loved to have been there that day. To see them marching day after day around Jericho, to hear the sound of the horn and the falling of the walls, it must have been an incredible sight. And that's not all. The, the writer in Hebrews goes on and says, What else should I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weak, weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight all done through this conquering faith. Our goal has changed somewhat. Our goal is to no longer conquer literal on this earth kingdoms, but we have a great commission, right? To go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation, to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that's our goal. My <laughs> one pastor, he had a way with words much better than me. But he said, we as Christians should be willing to storm the gates of hell with nothing but the gospel and the water gun. <laughs> that should be our attitude, right? Amen. We are at war. We should be at war. But we are at war with the forces of darkness. It's not each other that we're at war at, but we're at war with the forces of darkness, and we need to share the gospel, of course. Finally, saving faith is a persevering faith. True faith perseveres to the end. Once again, from our statement of faith, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach upon the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. 
Amen. Amen. Kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. It speaks a lot of what we know. Christians are not immune to sin. They, are, they can still fall into sin and neglect their salvation and be tempted be, and grieve the Holy Spirit, but they will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. We look at the example in verse in chapter 11. These men and women endured great tribulation, and yet they all persevered in their faith. You never see anyone in Hebrews chapter 11 who lost their faith, lost their salvation, and came back, do you? They all persevered to the end. No one lost their faith. They were mocked. They were flogged. They were put in chains and in prison. Some were were stoned to death and some were sawn in two. Many were killed with the sword. Most of them didn't have sufficient clothing. Many were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. If we saw the prophets of old times today, they might be appear as some of the homeless who are in our cities because they were destitute. They were commended for their faith, but never in this lifetime received what was promised because they were looking for a different country, a better country, right? Our heavenly abode in heaven. They sought a better country. We need to do that as well. <laughs> we need to keep our eyes focused on above. And yes, we have a work here to do on earth, but our motivation for that is what is above, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is our motivation, his great love for us. And in return, our great love for him should constantly keep in our forefront that we are at war and we will win the war because he has won the war. So in concluding this, we persevere in our faith because Jesus is greater than all other temptations or all other options. He's better. And all I can say to close this is what the disciples said in Luke 17, verse 5. They asked Jesus to increase our faith. Increase our faith. May he do that today, right? Right here in this place. As we get stand and ready to respond, may he increase our faith. Give us the faith to do important things for him let's pray father we thank you so much for this time and thank you for this scripture that uh, is just a beautiful illustration of faith saving faith what it's like how you describe it and how it appears to us father if there's one thing that we could take away from this is that we are to persevere in our faith and if there's a second thing it would be um, it would be that our faith needs to be increased and we ask that of you today that you would increase our faith and do the work that you've asked us to do we ask these things in Christ's name Amen, Amen.